You're listening to Change the World, the podcast for Jewish nonprofit leaders. I'm your host, Sivya Kohn. Hi, everybody. Thanks so much for joining me today. I smash up the format a little bit. I'm really excited about this conversation that I had with Uri Jaskol, who is someone I met through LinkedIn. We really see eye to eye on a lot of things, particularly as they relate to the Jewish nonprofit world. He is an EOS implementer with a very strong background and foothold in the Jewish nonprofit space. And we got to chatting a little bit about some of the ideas I've been talking about a lot on LinkedIn. And one of those ideas is the idea of nonprofits building a community as part of their mission and as a way to further their mission. It's something that I see to be really, really important given the fact that getting the attention of people is so, so difficult. It always has been, but every year it gets a little bit harder. And now there's just so much going on in the world, so much heartbreak and so many causes that are doing amazing things. And every organization deserves to really have a strong support base around them, but earning that is really difficult. And then, you know, I've been noticing there's certain brands that I mentioned in the the conversation that we're about to have that have really built very strong communities and they can't help but think about how much stronger a mission-based community could be than, let's say, a brand that has built a community around their product or, you know, their service or their lifestyle. So, you know, Ari and I really sat down to chat about this a bit. And before that, he brought on someone that he knows well. His name is Mayor Friedman, and he was a renewal kidney donor. And we have a conversation with him before we really dive into the idea of community that gives the firsthand experience of what it means for someone to be part of a nonprofit community and how powerful that is. So I think that conversation was just really, really enlightening. Um, I hadn't thought about it from the perspective of the community member. I'd been thinking about it from the perspective of the nonprofit as, you know, how they build one and how they get people to join. So I hope you all listen to the full podcast. I speak to Mayor Freeman and Ari Jask first, and then Ari and I dive into the nitty gritty of building a community, what it looks like and what the pieces are. So take a listen. Let me know what you think. And this is a conversation I hope to keep having because I think it's really, really going to become more and more important as time goes on. Hey, Mayor, how are you? Thank you for joining us. We're having a conversation around nonprofits building a community. And uh, I immediately thought of you because you are, on one hand, a recipient sort of community member in one community and as, and as well as taking lead in building community in your, in your current role. So just for the audience sake, can you introduce yourself and what role you play in your organization you work for? Yes. Yeah, so I'm the director of outreach and programming in Torah Links of Middlesex County, or Jewish outreach organization, and we're located in East Brunswick, New Jersey. Okay. So what made what made me think of you was, and remind me, you know, sort of, I remember that you are a kidney donor and uh, you did, you donated a kidney through, facilitated through a renewal. Uh, am I remembering correctly that, you know, sort of a, a brother of or two of yours as well donated? Yeah. My father was a heart transplant recipient. He passed away around six years ago now. And so in his memory, my brothers and I decided we're going to try donating our kidneys. So one brother donated his kidney before I did. Then I found him. I was, I was found a match where you know, and I donated my kidney and my last brother donated around the year after I did. Wow. Wow. So re- renewal, you know, sort of always intrigued me because they could, in theory, look at every one of those donations as transactional, right? You know, you just, they facilitate the 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 match. They yeah, obviously give you the education. You have to be motivated to do it, but facilitate the match. And then you could go on your merry life. But they have not done that. 
they have invested a tremendous amount of resources with that time and money into building a community. How does that feel for you and what do you see why they do that and et cetera? So that's definitely something extremely unique. I, I don't know, unique, but that your renewal has been really, really successful at. I can meet a kidney donor anywhere else in the world, never met him in my life. And like, because you both donate kidneys, especially through renewal, we're automatically like brothers, siblings connected. Um, it's really kind of one family. Um, as a matter of fact, I could, sh- I could show you, I don't know how well your screen is over there, but the, you know, like, like many other um, groups, so there's a kidney donor WhatsApp group through renewal. And the name of their, the name of the WhatsApp group is not kidney donors. It's not renewal. It's one kidney family. I don't know if that's showing up on the screen over there. It's like this idea of building a family around the kidney donation and around the kidney donors and a community they've been supremely successful at. We all feel like we're, we're we call ourselves kidney brothers. You know, the, the kidney donor. Like, I don't think of myself as a kidney donor. I think like as part of the kidney brother community is the, what they've uh, successfully done. Fascinating. And then why? I guess this ties into why, into the how. If some renewal has a very big, um, of, of, they have a big benefit for their, do, of their, with their donors. And anyone that is a kidney donor, that means that they underwent the knife to donate a kidney. It's not like, you know, they gave $2 to the organization or even $100, even $1,000. They literally went on the operating table or in the hospital, you know, could change your, your whole family, is, you know, change the whole schedule. I lived in Atlanta, I was donating in New York. So they flew me up to New York. They flew my family to Baltimore to take care of my family. So because my, my in-laws are in Baltimore, so they flew my, my children to Baltimore so my in-laws could take care of them. And it's really, it's, it really disrupts your entire life when you donate a kidney in a, in a big way. And so you have a lot of buy-in. You know, you could give, you could give $10, $20 to an organization. That's not much buy-in to the organization. You give a, you give a thousand or a hundred thousand dollars. That could be a lot of buy-in. That could be a tremendous amount of buy-in for some people. But when you donate a kidney, you literally gave a piece of your body for the cause or the, for the, towards the cause of the organization. And therefore for their, do- there's a lot of buying from the donors and renewal has very successfully cultivated that buy-in and really used that to create a community. Like we're all super motivated for the cause. Every year they have a campaign and um, a campaign, uh, like, like many other, other organizations, a crowdfunding campaign. And I didn't like, I don't actually look at the numbers to see who are the biggest Razors are, but there's no question in my mind that the kidney donors are the biggest razors of all the different teams they have out there because we we gave our kidney for it. We're certainly going to feel comfortable. It's obviously a cause that we fully believe in, that we're fully bought into, that we're going to rally around very easily. Did you right. walk us through the decision? Because you became part of the community after you donated the kidney, but before right. you were not part of the community and you made a very big decision. You could have done, you know, a big donation or mentored stuff. Like there's so many ways you can do something meaningful. What made you choose specifically this path? So I ha- I happen to have already been aware of kidney donation in general because my mother-in-law was a kidney, re- kidney tri- a kidney recipient. My father, I might be getting the dates off, but yeah, in 2008, my father received a new heart. He was a heart transplant recipient. And a couple years later, around five years later, it was my mother-in-law received the kidney. So I was very, very aware of the kidney wow. donation world. And I actually, before my brothers and I went into this, I tried donating my kidney to a friend of mine that I met in Atlanta. We used to live in Atlanta. Um, a friend of mine that met in Atlanta that I realized needed a kidney and I tried donating to him. I started the process and before I completed it, his wife called me up and he got a kidney. Wow. Um, so he didn't need me anymore. And then it really fell, off, it fell out of my mind, the idea of donating a kidney until my brother called me up probably around half year afterwards with this idea that all three of that, they're really this four four brothers. 
one hasn't yet donated. He's still waiting for a recipient. But he called me up that that uh, that this idea that if all four of us, my father, my father was a hard shot recipient. We gave him ten years of life. He ended up passing away from cancer afterwards. But we saw like I saw my father go from like an uh, older, uh, old sick man to a young guy through his. It was, it was, it was like it was miraculous. Wow! How many guys heart transplant? And we're trying to do something meaningful. Um, that be meaningful that is like associated with what he went through. So that was that's what gave my older brother the idea of donating our kidneys. And our hope was that if we all donate together as like as brothers, besides the actual lives that we're impacting by donating our kidneys to the individuals that we're donating kidneys to. Would hopefully create some sort of um, some sort of media splash that you know there's brothers donating kidneys together, not necessarily the exact moment of course because everyone has to be arranged in the, in the in some time, but would create some sort of publicity that would bring more kidney donation awareness, and Barksham it really has thank God it has done that. That was the uh, the ultimate motivation for me to donate. Wow, fascinating, and ho- hopefully this will uh, amplify your message of. Uh being the brotherhood that is motivating other people to, to donate their, their, their kidneys. To- totally. Like I like the, the, every 90, over 90% of kidney donors will tell you their biggest regret is they can't do it again. It's like, it's one of the best, you know, we only have one, we only have one kidney to give away. I wish we had another one or two or three to give away. And we really think of it. Kidney donors generally think of it as like, you know, it wasn't, it's not like I gave away my kidney. This is a, a line I actually heard from somebody during one, during renewals campaign last year, two years ago during their crowdfunding campaign of, it wasn't my kidney that 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 Hashem gave me. That God that God gave me. God gave me, you know, God gave me the job of protecting somebody's kidney for them. So for the first thirty some years, however old you are when you're doing it, for the first thirty, I was thirty, I was thirty seven, thirty four, thirty five when I did something around there. So for thirty five years, I was safeguarding this guy's kidney. I was finally able to like return it back to him, and that's um, really like the feeling. Like you know, why do we have two kidneys? Like it's it's it does have. Usually when people are in kidney disease, both kidneys end up going. So a second kidney might help them out a little bit longer, but it's rare for one kidney to fully go and the other kidney to be totally fine. So like there's no quite my brother, my brother said by one of my, uh, other, my oldest brother who really was the initiator of this plan. He's of, of all, of all the stonating. He said by one of the, I don't remember what it was. Maybe it was bar mitzvah of my nephew. I don't know exactly what it was. But he said, you know, for hundreds of years, um, there's only one mitzvah that, uh, that God said that we could do by giving away piece, part of our body. And that was by doing, you know, physically cutting our body a little bit. And that was, that was bris milah, circumcision. And finally, you know, 20, 30 years ago, whenever this started, Hashem, you know, Hashem gave us another opportunity to, to do another mitzvah by undergoing the knife. And it's really just like a unique opportunity. It's really, it's one of the best decisions I've made in my life. And that's wow. true for almost all kidney donors. So, so what I'm hearing from you is that your ability to be able to further contribute with either raising money for renewal or amplifying their message is your ability to be able to further your own mission of feeling that like you can't don't even donate another kidney, but maybe you can motivate others to do such a vital thing. Totally. I'm so fully bought into the mission and we'll do whatever I could to, to promote it. So what what is what does renewal practically do to cultivate the sense of community? So they have this automatic built-in thing that the people, the donors are fully committed to the cause and have tremendous buy-in. They treat us like you know of course the regular stuff tons of tons of swag and it gets like you know they give you the stuff which is um they have lawn signs like you know we just had a a renewal just put just had an event for the donor for donors and recipients a few weeks ago and they've always given out they have these lawn make sure every kidney donor has a lawn sign they put on the front lawn which says you know i do it in my it says uh, a proud kidney donor lives here and like thing on the side asking why i did it so 
I put them out, and you know, they they ask everyone to put it on their lawns on their lawns to just promote kidney donation awareness. And so I pulled to my driveway on my front lawn, smacking my face is, I am a kidney donor. On my car is a bumper sticker. I'm a kidney donor. My my wife has in her car family of a kidney donor. We have there's another kidney donor here in the neighborhood, and so I had to I was had to go to their to her house to drop something off. I didn't know her address, but I knew she was a kidney donor for through renewal. So I knew what street she was on. I could drive down the street. I see on her front lawn is I'm a kidney awesome. donor. I knew which house was hers. Like I didn't, I didn't know her. I did not need to know her address to find their house. So they're very good at like drilling this message into our brains, into our like you know we identify. I'm just not Mayor Friedman. I'm Mayor Friedman, the kidney donor. I have this like identity as a kidney donor, which through all of their, all the stuff they give us. Um, I mentioned the bumper, the, the bumper stickers, the the lawn signs. They sent, you know, we have a a challah cover for for Shabbos, a challah cover which says renewal on it. We have a napkin holder at the Shabbos table which says renewal on it. We have a lot of company. Anytime companies on that table, they see a napkin holder that says renewal. Like, what's 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 this renewal? So another chance to tell my story, another chance to talk about renewal and talk about kidney donation. They have um event. They have weekly annual uh, Shabbos get-togethers for kidney donors. Um, we always up in Stanford, Connecticut, the past number of years at least, and a chance for all the kidney donors and their spouses to just spend Shabbos together. It's just like reinforcing the idea that we're part of the kidney donor family. It's part of our identities. Who we are. It's not just something that we did. It's now something that we become, so to speak. And they're regularly cultivating that, talking talking with that language. I'd say to really make us feel that. So what I'm hearing is a sense of belonging and a and a common mission. Yes, totally. I have a question. Uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts would be, because obviously donating a kidney is a huge thing. And once you've done it, you've done it and you're part of this family. Do you get the sense based on your experience that any organization can replicate this model, even if they're not asking for a kidney, but they can also build a very strong community around their missions? So that's, that's a great question. I mean, Newell does have this built-in advantage of everyone there gave a kidney, which is like tremendous buy-in. I don't know how any other organization could replicate that buy-in, but from my experience in, non-pro- in you know in, in in the nonprofit world, the more buy-in we create from our community members, from our donors, the more they buy into the organization, into the mission, the more they're involved in it. There's no question they're the stronger that community will be. Um, like the classic, the, 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 the you know, of course, like having an advisory board, things of this nature, getting people involved in what you're doing and what the organizations are doing is no question the one of the best ways to build that community and and it becomes this um this organic growth so to speak somebody believes in the cause they tell their friends about it once they're part of it you don't have to sell it to them of course you have to keep reminding them of your mission you have to keep keep them pumped up about it but once they see themselves as part of your organization whether they're a volunteer employee or board member whatever they are that becomes who they are they're, pr- if they're hopefully they're proud of it and they talk about it to their friends and uh, so it could build on its own. So it would be harder for other organizations, but it is doable. And definitely I would highly recommend it. Totally. That's why I try to do with my organization is create the sense of community, whether we're talking about donors or talking about, you know, Jewish outreach, pe- bring people in the door. No question. The way to get people involved is have them join a community and they're part of the community. And the community does things certain ways or they grow certain ways, act certain ways. What mediums are you using to build the community and what tangible differences are you doing? Like, you know, you talked about lawn signs with swag, but practically in the work that you're doing on a day in, day day out basis, what difference is there now that you have this mindset of I'm building a community? That's a good question. So I'll give you an example of selling a hat with Gore in Atlanta. We used to Atlanta for an organization called Atlanta Scholars Colo, also a Jewish outreach organization. 
And we had a, um, we, we spent a Shabbos. I took a few guys. We spent a Shabbos in Baltimore. Um, we went for a, it was a weekend from Thursday night. We left there Thursday night. We went back Sunday, went back Sunday evening. It was very important to me that I found the flights for the fellows that were coming with me on that weekend and that we all flew together. One couldn't make that first flight. He ended up coming later, but we weren't just going randomly to Baltimore, meeting up in Baltimore and spending a weekend together, which in itself would have been great. We were going together and we were coming back together. We're going as a group. Like, you know, that, that idea of all on the same flight, all sitting next to each other on the airplane, we were part of it. We're part of a group. We're part of, we're on the same team right now. We're not randomly meeting up in Baltimore to join a program in Baltimore. We're going and returning as a team, as a group. I haven't implemented it yet over here, but we talked about maybe doing day trips to Albany Spuns. We talked about maybe doing day trips to, to Lakewood. And I was speaking with somebody that used to work in my organization who had done day trips to Lakewood, New Jersey. And he told me, I was talking about the itinerary that he did in Lakewood. Um, and he went through the different people he met He, he met with over there. With He took a group from East Brunswick and they met with different individuals in Lakewood and different organizations. So I, I asked him, I said, when you went to Lakewood, did everybody, we're only an hour from Lakewood, 45 minutes even without traffic. I said, did everybody just meet up at whatever address you gave them Lakewood or like you rented a van or took a van and all traveled together? So he said, no, we just met up over there. Um, so, if, so I haven't done any program like that since I came to East Brunswick, but if I would, I would de- try attempt at least to design it around the fact that we're going together. No, we're, everyone leave your car home. I'm renting a nice, beautiful, comfortable sprinter van or whatever it's going to be. And we're going to all go together as a group to Lakewood to experience this. And just these types of things of just having your mind on. And in terms, I'm, I'm just jumping in yeah. for a second. In so, terms of your brand identity, like. Do you see that? I mean, I haven't checked out your website in advance, but are you, is your messaging communicating this to your audience where they feel like that a part and parcel of the work that you're doing is creating that sense of community? Because, uh, you know, outreach organizations, I would say, are are unique in respect that why, I, I like, to me, the first question that when person starts thinking about what building community is, why are you doing it? Where does this fit into your larger strategy, right? Is it, you know, so like if you think about from a, like I said, I'd use technology company for an example, right? Let's say Slack. I don't know if you're using Slack to internally communicate, but Slack is typically a product-led growth te- sort of system, right? You're the, you like using it or Gmail. You like using it. You tell your friends, hey, why don't you use it? They don't necessarily need sales teams to go sell it. It's product-led growth, right? A lot of technology growth companies are shifting towards what's community-led growth, where they see that they're building a community. Why are they using the build the community? They're using it as a marketing component and a sales component, or maybe sometimes they're using it for sometimes customer success. Instead of having a whole bench of people answering questions, they just create a community where the the, the users are actually answering each other's questions. Right. And sometimes building a community is the product itself, right? You're just trying to create an environment where people thrive, right? I, I myself am part of a, something called Pavilion. It's a technology company, but it's all about creating community that everybody can learn from each other. So, you know, so if you're just wearing those different hats, is it marketing and sales? Is it sort of fundamentally operations or is it more of a customer success component? So I, I, I ask the same question to, to nonprofits, just like, what are you doing this for? Is it... And I, I'm, I'm, it's percolating in my mind about sort of wh- what's driving the strategy from renewal's perspective. Is it that they see it part of their mission, and sort of even on a on a on a operational level, sort of they need people sort of to to to, to attract 
kidney donors and they also need it from a fundraising perspective because now you guys are the biggest ambassadors. And so that may be very fundamentally different than to, to your point as an outreach organization where you see community as twofold, where it's one on, on actually expanding your reach, so sort of a marketing component, but also at the same time, it's also the product, right? You're also essentially marketing, selling the product, which is fundamentally community. And so I, I'm, have you thought about it from that angle? Yeah, yes. I mean, for us, like like you're saying, for renewal, I think, you know, of course the community is amazing and that's, you know, that, that's a major part of the organization, but their mission is getting kidneys donated to save more lives. If they could snap their fingers and have a way to do that and not spend any focus on creating community, they would choose the other way, I would expect. Their goal is not to create, their mission statement is not to create community, it's right. to save lives via kidney donation. While part of our mission statement as a Jewish Irish organization is to create community. So for us, it's really twofold, like you said, of of course, in terms of fundraising, making getting people involved, making them feel part of something, they're more likely to then want to give to that organization or get others to give to the organization. But also part of the mission statement itself is to connect people in a Jewish environment, in a Jewish way, through Jewish meaning and Jewish programming. So that Jewish community building is definitely a big part of, uh, is, is really a major part of our mission statement. And I always say, like, you know, what are, what is Torah links of Middlesex County? We're not a synagogue, a shul. We're not, you know, like we don't really have memberships. So we do a lot of things that shuls do, that synagogues do, but like, what, what are we? And I say, you know, we are, we're a family. You know, you're, we co walk into that building, you're part of the Torah links family. That idea of bring them into, you know, we're, I don't even use the word community. What I say for Turling's family because that's really how it is. You know, at least the sentiment I try instilling within within our four walls and and outside our four walls is that if you're part of Turling's, everyone there of Turling's is for you. You know, no matter you know we're a Jewish organization, we were focused on Jewish programming. But when somebody needs something, whether that whether it's Jewish related or not, we're there for them, and we try to help them in any way in any way that we could. Thank you so much. Yeah, no, that was really, really great and really, really helpful. I appreciate your time and um, I learned a lot. So I hope everyone who listened also did. My pleasure. Yeah, thank thank you. you for having me on. Thank you. Okay. So Uri, it's really nice to finally be having this chat with you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, how you kind of got into the nonprofit space? Sure. I think there's one story that really shapes a lot of my life. That really from a young age, you know, I, I grew up in a, a home of, you know, so I'm one of 10, Kanainara. Wow. My parents did not um, take us on vacation too many times. And when we went on vacation, they were definitely very memorable. And so there was one time where my father had a plan. He was very excited about, he rented way in advance an island, a small little campsite island in Lake George. And he had plans. To um, it's it's it sounds uh sounds like very crazy, but it's really just like six. Wait, where did you grow up? In Brooklyn, I grew up oh, in Brooklyn. Okay, so it's it sounds like you know you're renting an island. No, you're renting a campsite, which is like sixteen or thirty six bucks for the night. It's not like a crazy investment. And but because it's you know I guess the, there's not that many of them, you have to book them way in advance. And so I think he booked it in like January or December for the summer. And we were, a, I'm one of seven boys. So we were like very excited that we were actually doing uh, something that was more catered to boy interests. And we were looking forward to this vacation for months. And unfortunately, two days before the vacation, 
the number two bus bombing happened in Eretz Yisrael. And my mother said, I'm sorry, you know, you guys are not going to go. Like, it, it can't be that there are Jews that are dying in Eretz Yisrael that are sitting shiva while you sit and have a, an, an incredible vacation. And so we were young. I, I, I think I was like probably 10, 11 at the time. And it wasn't so easy. As a kid, I, you know, we kicked and screamed. And maybe, by, you know, we ended up going on like a, a pared down version of the vacation. But ultimately, you know, we, we, we may not have gotten that vacation, but I got an education for life. And so I, I think back a lot to the, the passion, being a very mission-driven person, because of the chinuch that I got from my mother, who probably got it from her great her grandfather, and so, you know, fast forward to where I channel that energy. My wife and I uh, started off our marriage in Rabbi Berkowitz's Kail in Eretz Yisrael. Yisrael Berkowitz is Jerusalem Kola. and I got you know I got smicha there, and then from there was hired by HUK. We were hired as a couple to build a branch for them in Southwest England in Bristol. And so I always had a very strong entrepreneurial spirit and I always felt like, you know, I always appreciated education and I wanted to get myself a master's in business. And so I was like real, a little bit hesitant to go there. But at the time, Naftali Schiff, who runs, you know, HUK now, um, said to me, why don't you go to, to business school here in the UK and help us learn best management practices and bring them into the organization? And so starting the branch of Bristol was the best case study for us. So like while I went and did my, you know, sophisticated education, I was able to sort of like synthesize a lot of it right away into the startup that we were building. The, you know, sort of was, was, was we were founding the branch. It was very unusual because usually you have either people who jump right into nonprofits and they don't really know anything about business or you have people who went into business and then sort of segued into nonprofit. You went to business school with the intention of Helping a nonprofit. Did I understand that right? Yes, exactly. So that's unusual. Exactly. So anyway. I'll, give you, I'll give you a very subtle, you know, sort of subtle case study where where this played out, right? So in order to be able to sort of like build out the, you know, sort of build out the community there, we started with a core nucleus of students of paid, I would say paid student ambassadors. And so the practice that Aish was operating at the time was paying each one of these individual student ambassadors, let's say a hundred pounds for the for the for the semester to be the brand ambassadors on the on on the campus. And they and they had certain sort of job duties and sort of, you know, whether they got a certain amount of students to come to a certain amount of things triggered their ability to get paid. And I think we were studying at the time uh, in aligning incentive programs together with what your strategy is, right? Like how businesses need to think about how you pay people to support what you're actually trying to get them to accomplish. And so I said, I realized for myself that that at the core of what, what we're doing is building a Jewish community, building a Jewish student community, where we want people to feel you sort of inclusive and, an, and a sense of belonging. And creating an environment where there was brand ambassadors that essentially had metrics associated to their poor performance that pitted them against each other was not going to help me create that core student community. And so I looked at it as more of like a, you know, sort of like an orbit model. So like you have your, you have me and my wife who were the most passionate about that mission. And then we have brand ambassadors that are a slightly wider circle around that. We wanted them to be a tight knit, really really tight-knit, committed, 
you know, sort of, and beneficiaries, not just because they're paid, but beneficiaries of it. And then a wider circle where they then invite in a wider circle, which then maybe on the periphery, there's a, you know, sort of just potential students that are interested in joining the community. And back up for one second, because for those who are necessarily not so familiar, let's introduce the idea of community and what it's all about and why you made that decision that that was important for what you were building. So, okay, so good. So I I mentioned earlier that fundamentally every single organization has three critical functions. Uh, I'm going to say four critical functions. You have marketing in the world where they create brand awareness, right? Where they attract either their beneficiaries or their donors towards being engaged with their with their with their mission. And then you have fundraising slash sales. So fundraising from sort of attracting the donors' resources, or sales maybe just really in getting those so people that are potentially theoretically interested in working with you to really being interested in working with you. And then you have operations where you actually deliver your 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 service to them or your goods, depending on why you're building this community, what you're doing, what you're doing as an organization. And then finance is where you're tracking inflows and outflows of money. So if you have, you know, sort of those four fundamental accountabilities. And so, you know, I like to start, take a step back and say, like, why is community and building community a sense of like, why is it important to you? Is it core to what you're actually trying to deliver in your operational level? Or is it sort of utility just to sort of help you attract resources? And well, I, I would think that if it is utility, it's not going to work. Like people could sense that you have a well, ulterior motive, right? So that that's a great question. And I think that if you're thinking thoughtfully about it, I think that maybe the lines are a little bit crossed. They're a little bit crossed in terms of uh, where they, what gives strength to the nether, to the nether, right? So we talked earlier with mayor about renewal, right? And how the donor kidney donors feel very committed to the mission, right? So maybe their entry point into why they're contributing is wanting to give their kidney, but ultimately they're, what keeps them engaged in the future is purely more to be able to be more marketing and fundraising, more creating awareness. They're, they're not themselves able to donate another kidney but more creating awareness to invite other people into donating or attracting donors into it. And so that's true that there needs to be an overlap to really create that commitment to it for it to be real. But the question is still, why are you doing it? You need to get clear on why you're actually investing time and resources into it. The way I see it is that every organization can look at their mission as a movement. So it's not just, you know, they have a mission and they have to accomplish X, Y, and Z, and then they can go home. They need people to buy into their movement. And the method to do that is to build a community around it because you need to invest in people, in people's investments to care enough. You just Everyone is just very, very busy and has a lot going on, but they care. The, the biggest proof that our conversation with Mayor Friedman from, you know, who donated a kidney to renewal, the biggest myth that that disproves actually is that people don't want to be bothered. Like, I think organizations think like they just need to like minimal, don't bother us too much. We just want to write a check. Like, no, people really, really want to be involved and they're willing to work. But the organization has to position themselves as the movement that is deserving of that investment. So if it's a, you know, just a ploy <laughs> to sort of get people so to ultimately I, donate, it's it's just, it's false. Yeah, no. So I, I definitely, I definitely appreciate that, but, you, but there definitely needs to be an element of, 
reverse engineering and saying like, fundamentally, what are you trying to accomplish? And so I'll explain, I'll, I'll give you another case study where I think is very important, right? We talk about my my work at Aish, right? I lived in Bristol. It was Southwest thing. There was not a strong Jewish community at all. It was my wife and I, and then also there was a Chabad couple and then a chaplain joined later. So there was really three from families in the whole city. So in terms of like really activating uh, a Balabatan community, a religious Jewish community to be really invested and engaged on a local level was impossible, right? But now you're finding, but I myself saw that in my own psyche and the way I was relating to students, that students related to me as a business school student a lot more effectively than they did as me as a rabbi. They saw that I was just, I was a master's student. They saw me a couple of steps ahead of them. And so it was an interesting thing because I was wearing the rabbi hat, but inside I was connecting to them really more as a balabas, connecting more as just an, just a lay leader in the world. And so that really shaped me for where I am today, where I'm, where I am very much plugged into the Jewish outreach world and actively seek out opportunities to be able to really connect to the wider Jewish community. And so, so in that interest, I see that there's a very much dynamic in every Jewish community. We are, we are the, those that are working as full-time employees for Jewish organizations their outreach Jewish organizations need to create in their strategy a relationship with a Kanela Kachavar, which having a wider community of from engaged, connected to them, I think there's this very practically in their mission, they need that dynamic, right? And so what comes to my mind is for me, any nonprofit that's I'm just looking for a book to just show you. So this the book obviously is like a holy grail for, for any organization that's looking to really take these to the next level. So Jim Collins' book called Good to Great, but he wrote a little sort of pamphlet. I, I, I can't find it, just like pulling it off the shelf, but he wrote another pamphlet as called Good to Great for the Social Sectors. I read this years ago and I felt like it really helped me reframe the idea of that, like all we need is just money to really realizing that we need resources. Right. In order to be able to create anything, you need resources. What is what are the primary resources? You don't need to really go very far to see that. Hashem gave a commandment to the Jews to build the Mishkan, right? And he gave a very vivid vision, Rachel Bitchaktan, exactly precise details on what needs to go into building the Mishkan. So there was 100% alignment about what needed to be built, right? Unfortunately, most organizations now don't have God speaking and giving them real specific, precise measurements of what they should be doing. So there's a struggle on creating alignment on the detail, right? And that's the world I play with, you know, sort of day to day as an EOS implementer. But putting those together, so you have your, you have aligned vision from Hashem, and He said, "What do you need to actually build this Mishkan? You need Chachmelev and Adivelev, right? You need." Chachmelev are people that actually have the skill to do something, and you need divelev. You need people that are willing to give the materials, right? And so the in the Mishkan they were building, they needed a lot of materials. They didn't just say, "I need money to be able to then go buy the materials." They actually asked for this precise materials, and people came, you know, sort of graciously came, giving the precise materials that they have. And so when I think of a nonprofit that's trying to attract resources, I think of that like you know that not running your organization from 
here, okay, I just have this fundraiser I need to close, but creating a resource engine where there are Chachmelev and Adivelev that are really invested in helping you. And so some of those Chachmelev you're going to have to pay as your internal employees, and some others of those Chachmelev are people that you're going to motivate as either volunteer contributors. And so that's where a tremendous amount of building the community, you know, sort of really is valuable to you because you're sort of coming full circle back to having these Balbatim, having the lay leaders get connected to universities. So there's there's a few really good case studies on this. So Jewish Experience, RJX, which really recently rebranded to to JX, Rutgers is bringing Balbatim in on a Thursday night basis to be actively involved. And they're doing Shabbatones in Lakewood or maybe even the five towns now that they're expanded to Hofstra. They're, as an organization, thinking not, oh, I just want to cultivate, you know, just to be able to get the donors, but I really need people genuinely involved in my operation. I need genuinely people involved in the, in the education, in the relationship building. And naturally, when someone is involved in your system, so then, of course, they feel a buy and a feel a commitment to being, if they can, if they're in a position to be able to provide resources or maybe be a brand ambassador. To be able- he is really for the organization to view the, com- the building of the community as a core part of the mission, because there is really no case in which that wouldn't be a huge asset. In, you know, whether it's a service-based organization or they're doing spiritual work or, you know, it's outreach. Having a community that is invested and involved can only further the mission. So there really is no world to me in which, you know, somebody who's doing this for the right reasons would be only using it as a means to an end because it doesn't even play out. So I think that the maybe the the process is a little bit hard because it is. Can I um, flip that narrative for a second, though? Sure. Because even money is is what is it? It's just a, it's a means to an end. So you know we don't have to make donating to an organization as as the, the enemy and trying to get donors as the enemy because having donors involved in something is just an adive lave that care about your mission. So some well, people do it right. Getting those donors could be the entryway into the com- thing that where the organizations go wrong is that they just drop the connection after them, right? That that donor who gave even eighteen dollars, they just raised their hand and said, you know, I care to maybe a little bit of an extent, but then the onus is on the organization to say, okay, well, you care a little bit. Can we make you care more? Can we bring you in? Can we make you part of our family? So, so what, what I, the, there's a few questions that I think of when I think about sort of um, trying to build a community. I think of, you know, from the perspective of the, of the participant, which is like, do I belong, right? Do I feel like that this is a mission that, A, I share the, the core values of the people that, you know, sort of, even outreach work, right? You could, you could, there's so many different core values that shape why you're interested in outreach work, right? Is it because you're on a, a holy mission? You feel like you have the truth and so you need to spread that truth to other people or is it from place of love? And so you could be doing the same thing as somebody else, but doing it completely differently. And so there's, there's two elements that play out in my mind, which is core values and core focus. So core value, I'm using EOS sort of sprach or terminology, but who you are and why and what you do and where the organization is going is fundamental to start giving a people feeling of, do I belong? The second thing is obviously, is do I believe? Now, besides for feeling a sense of belonging in that, do I actually believe that I want to be contributing towards that bigger vision? And then the, fun, the third thing is, do I have an opportunity to contribute? Like, do I understand what role I play in that contribution? 
and and really a subset of that is am I heard, right? Because because in order to be able to to contribute, and this was you know sort of like coming full circle on HUK actually, one of the things that I that we were studying in business school was the concept of co-creating, right? How a lot of businesses are shifting towards co-creating with their customers. The more you co-create with your customers, the more they're involved. And so obviously nonprofits think about this from a board level. Like why what like why are boards uh, in my mind a board is just a formalized a formalized commitment towards helping you further your mission, right? There's a formalized structure. But in order to be able to really really give people the sense of that we're building together as opposed to you're just using my skill and that I plug in as a just a just a just a little niche in your system is the opportunity to co-create like what decisions do you are you willing to give your constituents to actually shape the direction and so you can't don't them on and give them orders. Like they have to really, exactly. like you want to hear them and you want their input. That's really important. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, uh, you know, sort of if I was taking someone through the exercise of trying to think about sort of being intentional about building a community, I would say like, you know, where fundamentally do I see this building community as strategically part of what I'm trying to do? Right. We talked about that. And then I would say, okay, so now where is the opportunity for us to really, for them to contribute? And then also where is their opportunity for decision-making on, on a volunteer level? And then fundamentally is like, what are the mediums that, that I am going to then go about cultivating this community? And so, for example, you know, as simple as, you know, what I, I'm, I learned part of a Kenyan Masech Khabur in the morning, right? They're really good case study of, of, a, of a movement. When you talk about a movement, how do they create a movement? It sounds subtle, but they created a movement by creating a, there's a core team that has a little bit of a wider circle, which are the Rashi Khabura, and they invest in that Rashi Khabura by having a Shabbaton just for the Rashi Khabura and their wives. And then immediately following that, they do a much larger event for everybody that learns Gini Masechta, and they've done it every year consistently at Bellworks. And and so that that medium of investing heavily on their Rosh Chabura and then having that cascade out to a wider circle, then now creates people that really feel they're part of this movement that then also want to invite their friends in. And there's something else that I noticed that they do, which is that they're conference, their convent, whatever you call their get together, their convention has the same theme every single year. So while you'll see the Aguda switches themes every year or other organizations, they change the theme because they want to feel like there needs to be a certain refreshness to it. They have this one common theme, which is Legadlos, which is they're trying to create an environment where you feel that by plugging in to your learning through Kenya Masechta, it is triggering your own godless, your own expression. And that's, that's very what I believe, it's very powerful. It's very, very powerful. It's, it's You're coming year in, year out to this event to not just come and get ex- inspired, but also actually reflect back on how much greatness did I develop since that last year we got together. So let's generalize this a bit. So with this, you know, the audience of this podcast is really people in the nonprofit space. And I think for a lot of them, the concept of community is new and maybe a little bit intimidating. 
what would you really want them to take away from this episode in terms of the importance of building it, the process of going about it? Can you make this very tangible and practical? So number one, I would say, where are the overlapping circles between what you're accomplishing and what your community member is trying to accomplish in their life? And find that overlap because that's going to be your sweet spot, right? Where there's going to be alignment between what you're building and what they're hoping in their own life. So to create and and accelerate through plugging into your community, right? And then the second thing is really tightening up and saying like, who is your audience, right? Like you, you, you got to tighten up the profile of, you, you, you know, as a marketer, I'm sure you could, you know, could talk to, you have a little bit more color on that. So maybe put a pin on it and maybe you could come around to tidy that up. And then this, the, the second thing is, what's the medium that you're going to then utilize to be able to build that community? Is it events? Is it, you know, sort of like high level events or is it more grassroots events? Is it, or is it a cadence of meetings? Right. And then in that, in the, in those events, what are you communicating to the people? Is there an opportunity for them to make an impact? Like, what are you hoping for them to do? And maybe you just hoping for, maybe you have something for them to do, but if you want to really create a strong nucleus of real ambassadors, where is there an opportunity for them to be heard and contribute? And so whenever you're building community, you have to build in a, a feedback loop. I could also just add that community has the unique ability for the people who are part of it to be connected to each other. And I think that's really the power of not just focusing on connecting people to your organization, which we can do with marketing in general, but connecting people to each other so they have this connection that's so much stronger. It's two-way. It's it's part of their lives. I think that's what Mayor Friedman was really describing he now has with the kidney brothers. Like it, it, They're all connected to each other and you really can't by that kind of like energy and power that 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 really brings. Right. That's true. I mean, it's 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 really interesting because in order to be able to create belonging, there's really two there's two elements to it. There's one is just sort of feeling a, a sense of feeling safe here. And there's also a common mission. And not always do you have both of those things. Right. You know, he has the common past and a common mission. But if it was just a common past, that wouldn't have the same strength. Yeah. That makes so sense. like, for example, I'm working with Teach Coalition. Teach Coalition is is a single interest advocacy group, right? They're on one, um, they're on a mission to help Jews access Jewish education by sort of minimizing the, the need for us to be fronting all the expenses for it, right? And so that mission has a lot of avenues for the average person to get involved. You can sure. be getting involved by, you know, a voter, a voter drive or getting involved on a political level, there's just tremendous amount of opportunity and it needs to be community driven because they wouldn't in their own life would not be able to make the impact they can on their own. And so, but that's a a common mission. You know, that's a real common mission in more than just having a common sense of like, I belong here because I, you know, sort of really share and see the world the way these people see the world, but more also from an audience perspective, just to go back to the point that you brought up, you don't have to reach everybody. Very few organizations really, really need the attention of every single person in the community, even if that were possible. It's not possible, but you, even if there were a way, you don't need everybody. You need a core engaged group who really, really care and then will then bring in their people and their people and will grow that way. So I think you know, for organizations to kind of narrow down who they really need to connect 
is maybe makes the whole thing feel a little bit less intimidating because you're never going to well, be able to appeal to everybody at the same time. That's well, I would say that I would say I would actually stress that a little bit more, which is that not only will you not be able to reach everybody, I, I'd say intentionally not try to reach people. Yeah. Which is that, you know, sort of we teach core focus, part of core focus and the scary thing about core focus for the average business or the average organization is like, wait a second, I, if I narrow myself to being an expert at something, then I'm closing doors. And the answer is yes. Yes. By definition in your life, when you're saying yes to something, you have to say no to something else. That's just a reality. And in order to be able to really attract believers, you have to be willing to say, this is the mission that I'm on. And these are the types of people that I'm trying to attract. I think the more you- because some organizations are afraid to kind of be bold. So they make their messaging very powerful because they don't want to like scare anybody off. But when you make messaging powerful, nobody cares. So right. you're very intentional about who you're trying to reach. You say what you want to say. Say what you really mean to say. And good. If you scare off the people who will not be believers, then even better. Yeah. Where do you see this in your in your line of work? So I almost see it as a replacement for a lot of the work we do, which sounds crazy. But the nonprofit work that we do has gotten less effective, more expensive. Fundraising campaigns, advertising, people are so bombarded with it that it's just getting harder and harder. And the stunts that nonprofits have had to kind of fall back on to raise money and to get attention. They're really time consuming. They take away from the core mission. So I think this has to replace it. And I think the smart organizations will look at the way businesses have been doing this, like Lululemon and Harley Davidson. And you have some businesses who really Stanley the cup, right? Like if they can build missions around leggings and drinking cups, like imagine what an organization can build around the mission that actually means something to people. So I see this as it's going to be a necessity and the smart ones will start new and everybody else will play catch up, but there really is soon going to be no other way to do it. It's just, it's becoming unsustainable. Right. Very cool. Well, it was really nice to have this conversation with you. If anybody wants to learn more about the work that you do, ask you any questions, what's the best way for them to reach you? Call me. Okay. Do you want to give your number? <laughs> yes. I'm not afraid of it. I, I you know, 347-633-1779. Again, 347 347- Six three three one seven seven nine. Awesome! Thank you so much. This was a really great conversation. I don't answer. That means I'm busy with somebody, and Stop I'll get back to them. Yeah, exactly. Leave a message or WhatsApp me. Perfect. Yeah. Thank you very okay, much. Hey, my pleasure. Great. Okay, take care. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Change the World podcast. If you have any feedback or an idea for my next episode or if you're a nonprofit leader interested in learning more about how 14 Minds can help your nonprofit, I'd love to hear from you. Just send an email to tsivia at 14minds.com. For more nonprofit content, follow me on LinkedIn or visit 14minds.com.